We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 12 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, March 8th, 2021, a week in which it is supposed to warm up here in the D.C. area. The D.C. area, as some like to say. Temperatures in the 60s and 70s, Tuesday through Thursday. We have earned this. We have suffered enough with the cold. Let us hopefully suffer no more. Hope you had a nice weekend. Bradley Beal on Sunday night led his team in scoring and yet had lost. Does that sound familiar? I mean, how about that with the NBA All-Star game on Sunday night? Bradley Beal had a team-high 26 points for Team Durant in a 170-150 loss to Team LeBron in the NBA All-Star game. Not that anybody cares about the outcomes of these All-Star games, but I just found that to be so apropos, right? Bradley Beal is the team's leading scorer, but Bradley Beal's team ends up losing. Gives up 170. You know, Bill was probably like, 170? That's a pretty good night defensively, isn't it? The damn Washington Wizards! Yeah, I mean, that's what he's used to <laughs> with the Wizards. Anyway, uh, all-star game on Sunday night. Both the Capitals and Maryland Terrapins were playing on Sunday night. For the Caps, a great result uh, for the Terps. A debacle. What a collapse by the Terps against Penn State. We're going to get to that uh, on today's show. Caps, Terps, Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech. This week is conference tournament week. 
in college basketball. March Madness is upon us. It's a beautiful time of year. Speaking of madness, the Danny. Oh, the Danny. Oh, Danny boy, as the song goes. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. How about the day that was Friday for Dan Snyder and the Washington football team? A day like few others in the history of the franchise. I will give you my thoughts. I will give you a Bill Callahan-like deep dive into all that surfaced on Friday regarding the Beth Wilkinson investigation, the supposed internet campaign by Donnie Boy to win himself good publicity, including the bots. Oh, the bots. Donnie, if you're behind this, this is an all-timer. Twitter bots to engineer good publicity for Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. Alex Smith, he's now officially gone from Washington. I have for you today three things that don't get talked about nearly enough regarding Alex and his time with the Washington football team. We'll talk about those three things in just a bit. Got lots for you in this installment of the Al Goldie podcast on the Nationals and Orioles as well, including this mysterious Jeremy Jeffress situation with the Nats. Speaking of the Nats, the latest installment of the Nats Chat podcast that I do with Mark Zuckerman is out. Uh, you can find that wherever you find your podcast, wherever you find this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast. As Yes, I am double-dipping. Uh, there is the Al Galdi podcast. There is the Nats Chat podcast with myself and Mark Zuckerman. Got this tweet from Alan Lapore. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. Uh, Alan writes, Matthew Berry, talking about the uh, ESPN fantasy football guy. Matthew Berry calls doing multiple podcasts committing podultery, but I think in this case it would be considered consented podultery or an open podlationship. Yes, uh, everything we do is consensual in terms of our podcasting, okay? This is not an Andrew Cuomo situation uh, on this podcast, allegedly. Uh, but anyway, yes, uh, appreciate <laughs> appreciate that tweet, Alan. Uh, thank you. You can email me too, of course, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Bill. Uh, he writes, hey, Galdi, just wanted to say thank you for all the hard work on your podcast. You're welcome, Bill. And I really appreciate that you released it early in the morning. I download my podcast at home before work on Wi-Fi. Yours is the only podcast that's fresh. All other podcasts are a day old before I get to listen to them. Thank you. P.S. I enjoy the opening song. Look at that, my man Bill. Another convert uh, to the movement that is liking Welcoming with open arms the intro song to this podcast. That is a movement that is gaining momentum, people. I told you this the other day. People are starting to come around to the intro song uh, to this podcast. We won't do a whole thing on it right now. But yeah, man, the momentum is growing when it comes to that. But no doubt, Bill, people like you are exactly why I put this podcast out super early each day. But of course, you don't have to listen to it super early if you don't want. You can listen to it, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon if that's better for you. That's the beauty of the podcast. It is there for you. Whenever you want it, plain and simple. All right, lots to talk about today, but we must begin with our friend, the Donny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. So I do believe that there will come a time when we are normal, when our football team is such that weird, ridiculous, absurd things we need not discuss. There will be a time when order is restored, when life seems as it should be. I don't know when that time will be. I know for sure. That time is not right now because what happened this past Friday regarding the Washington football team truly was an all-timer. And like I said earlier, that's saying something because we've had a number 
of days like that over the years. The insanity that was this past Friday. First of all, from just purely a football news standpoint, you had on Friday Washington officially releasing Alex Smith. We'll get to that in just a little bit. You also, by the way, had multiple reports that Director of Football Operations Paul Kelly and Head Equipment Manager Anders Butel or Botel, I'm not sure how to say it, were out as Ron Rivera continued this purge of guys who predated him with the team. But okay, fine. Those were like football-related items. Also on Friday, of course, were the two major developments regarding Dan Snyder and the sexual harassment scandal. Development number one came via the sports junkies on 106.7 The Fan on Friday morning, saying that they had received information from Beth Wilkinson's report on her findings in the investigation. Remember, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting on these findings from this Beth Wilkinson investigation, which started last summer, last July. We're now, of course, well into the month of March, and we have heard nothing, or at least we had heard nothing, regarding, well, what did the investigation uncover? The top two recommendations from this report from Beth Wilkinson, per the junkies, were one, force the owner to divest ownership of his team, and two, suspend the owner for a significant period to allow time to repair the team's infrastructure and culture. So basically, the report, per the junkies, was saying, you got to force Danny to sell the team, and if he's not going to do that, or if you're not going to do that, then you must at least suspend Danny for a significant period of time. Absolute bombshell, right? Basically, the worst case scenario for Danny was playing out with these recommendations in this Beth Wilkinson report. Well, then came multiple reports of an NFL spokesperson saying that this report from the junkies was, quote, absolute false, and that the league had, quote, received no such report. So what are we to believe, right? On the one hand, absolute jaw-dropping findings from Beth Wilkinson. On the other hand, complete and rapid denial from the NFL regarding the validity of what the junkies had to say. Well, I guess I would say a few things. Number one, it is notable, all right, and you do have to say this, that the junkies were the only outlet that had this. Nobody else had this. You know, a lot of times when it comes to major news, somebody breaks it, and then very quickly, others pile onto it. So like one guy or one outlet will report something, it's a big item, and then very quickly, that is confirmed by multiple other people. I was waiting for that on Friday. I think a lot of us were waiting for that on Friday. It did not happen. It's not like the junkie said this on Friday morning and then, you know, ESPN's Adam Schefter said, yes, I can confirm this. Or NFL Network's NFL.com's Ian Rappaport said, yes, I can confirm this. Or anyone local, you know, J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington, John Keim of ESPN, Ben Standig of The Athletic DC. Nobody could confirm this. Nobody else had this. And again, the NFL was very quick to tell many, if not all of these people, this report isn't true. We have received no such report. So the junkies are out there on an island with this thing, okay? And I think that's notable. That's notable. Like a lot of times, it's not just one person reporting something big. It's many people end up reporting it. Here we are days later, junkies are still the only people reporting this. However, and I want to emphasize this, this doesn't mean that they're wrong, okay? This doesn't mean that this is fake news. This doesn't mean that like, you know, they made this up or they got this from some faulty source. 
you know, time will clearly tell on something like this. I tend to believe, though, that there is truth to this. I don't think the junkies just make this up. You know, the junkies have had stuff in the past on the Washington football team. It's not like they've never had intel. It's not like they've never had inside information on what's going on. And, you know, let's see what comes of this. But I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, this is fake news. This isn't true. Uh, they're totally wrong. They're going to look like idiots with this whole thing. Let's see. Let's see. But I'm never dismissive anymore of who breaks something. Because in today's modern media landscape, all kinds of people in all kinds of forms of media break stuff. You don't have to be some quote unquote, you know, formal reporter to break news. Like a lot of different people have broken stuff, especially with the Washington football team. You know, I had on this podcast a week ago today, Brent, aka Burgundy Blog. It was Burgundy Blog a few years back who first broke the news that Alex Smith was having issues in terms of infection, in terms of, you know, the surgeries with the right leg. Like, he was the guy who first put that out there. It wasn't uh, Adam Schefter. It wasn't Ian Rappaport. It wasn't anyone local. It was Burgundy Blog. You know, so it's like you should never be so arrogant to just dismiss, well, he's not a, a traditional reporter. He's not traditional or they're not traditional media. Ergo, you can't believe what they say. It's like, no, you never know. You never know. You got to be open-minded to this. So I want to make that very clear in terms of it being the junkies who had this on Friday. I also want to say this, and I know this is getting like kind of deep into the weeds in terms of parsing things, but when the NFL says that it has received no such report, that doesn't mean that the report doesn't exist. It also doesn't mean that the findings that the junkies reported on aren't true. You know, the NFL spokesperson said that this is absolutely false. So what exactly is absolutely false wasn't clear. Is it false that the NFL has received this report? Or are the actual findings slash recommendations in the report false? Now, if that's what the NFL means, then that is a legitimate denial. Yes, of what the junkies said. But if this is just, well, we have received no such thing. It is false that we have received such a report. Well, that's different, right? That's saying, well, we have not received the report. Okay, that doesn't mean that that's not what the report says. So we'll see. Like I said, time will tell on how true this is. But of course, and this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Of course, this is an all-timer if it's true. This is like a gift from the football gods in the heavens. If it's true, this is the thing that we've always kind of said, like, okay, Dan's in his 50s. He's not selling the team anytime soon, right? The only thing that would lead to Dan Snyder no longer being the owner of the Washington football team, truthfully, would be some kind of scandal, right? Like something where he's forced out. And this may well be it. This may actually be it. It's incredible. This is the worst case scenario for Danny. If, in fact, this report is true, a recommendation for him to divest ownership of the team, and if not that, a lengthy suspension so that the team can repair its infrastructure and culture. You know, lengthy suspension to me, that doesn't mean like, you know, four months or six months. That to me means like a year, maybe even more than a year. So this is huge if it's true, and that's a big if, and we shall see. But, I mean, think about this. Think about all that has happened with our team over the last, say, 18 months. Jay Gruden fired. Bruce Allen fired. Ron Rivera hired. Larry Hess fired. Name change. Sexual harassment scandal. Ownership turmoil. Massive turnover 
on the roster, a division championship, which is still amazing when you think about it. It has been some kind of ride, man, over the last year and a half. And I really do believe, especially if this report's true from the junkies, we're going to look back upon the last 18 months, you know, maybe eventually like the last two years, three years, however long it takes. We're going to look back upon this as an unprecedented time in the history of this franchise. You know, this this team, this organization that we inexplicably care so much about, right, and spend so much of our time talking about and thinking about. This era of change, this period of time of change is something we've never had with any of our other teams. And we may well never have again. But this is it, man. Like we are in the middle of a very tumultuous time, no doubt. A very crucial time, no doubt. But a time that could end up making things so much better. You know, we will see. We will see. But you you really cannot overstate the potential significance of what the junkies put out there on Friday. The Beth Wilkinson report, again, per the junkies and nobody else, at least not yet saying you got to either force Danny to divest ownership of the team or you got to suspend Danny for a significant period of time. So that's really truly what got the insanity going on Friday when it came to the Washington football team. And then there were the bots, okay? And like I said, this is an all-timer if it's true, if it's true, okay? So also emerging on Friday was the appearance of Dan Snyder or someone or some entity working on behalf of the Donnie, having potentially launched an undercover internet campaign to win him good publicity. You heard all that right, okay? Among the items. So first of all, someone had purchased Facebook ads to promote an article, okay? The article has the headline, (laughs) Dan Snyder and his work, with the Washington Charitable Foundation, okay? The Washington Charitable Foundation, as many of you know, is a legitimate arm of the Washington football team. It is the means through which the Washington football team has done a lot of charitable work over the years, and that charitable work has taken place. Like, Dan and his team, to its credit, do do a lot of charity work, okay? Like, a lot of teams do that, but Washington does do that, and Dan and the team do deserve credit for that. Anyway, someone wrote an article about this. Dan Snyder and his work with the Washington Charitable Foundation. Okay, here's the other weird thing. It appears, the article does, on a website called nyctalk.org. Okay, so obviously newyorkcitytalk.org. Hmm. Now, why would a website dedicated to New York City have an article about Dan Snyder and his work with the Washington Charitable Foundation. Hmm, okay. You take a look at this website, nyctalk.org. It is an infrequently updated website. You say, well, Goldie, how do you know this? Well, you can tell this by going to the site and then looking off to the right side, and you see other articles available on the site. <laughs> and, and one of the featured articles on the site has the following headline. What's for dinner? This Valentine's Day in NYC. So, yeah, you could say it's maybe been a while since the website has been updated, right? Friday was March 5th. Valentine's Day was March 14th. A website, again, nyctalk.org, has an article about Dan Snyder and his charitable foundation. And it's a website that 
has among its recent articles an article about what's for dinner this Valentine's Day in NYC. Hmm. Seems kind of odd. I mean, you don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Zuckerman. Uh, you, you know, you don't have to be Bill Gates to say to yourself, mm, I don't know. This seems kind of sketchy. This seems kind of maybe not real, but okay, fine. You also had this, the bots. And there was a terrific article about all this written by Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. And here's some of what he wrote. Quote, a number of new users also appeared on Twitter. All female, all accounts created in October 2020 that have been tweeting out praise of Snyder's efforts over the past week. The accounts appear to be bots, which means they don't represent actual people, end quote. And sure enough, and you can look it up. I looked it up. I did the work for you, in fact. But anyway, you can do it if you like. The tweets all came out this past Thursday and Friday. Now, for the record, Danny's attorney told Phillips, quote, Dan Snyder unequivocally denies ever using bots or fake accounts to put out favorable news stories. In fact, over the past year, thousands of bots have popped up in a coordinated campaign to spread misinformation about Dan and the Washington football team, all of which have been reported as such to various social media sites, end quote. So we should say that it is possible that this has nothing to do with Danny and that somebody else set all this stuff up, okay? That is possible. You have to say that. There's no direct proof that Danny or Team Danny or someone close to Danny set up these bots, okay? That is true. You have to say that. But how about these tweets, man? (laughs) Have you read these tweets? Have you seen these tweets? There are so many of them. And they are hysterical, okay? Let's just go through just a few of them, all right? Anna Kresmer, all right? Good old Anna Kresmer tweeted, quote, do right, receive good karma. Shout out to at Washington NFL and at NFL for working on diversity, triple exclamation mark, end quote. And you're going to notice something with these tweets. Not only are they supremely favorable to Dan Snyder and the Washington football team, they all tag, they all at both the Washington football team and the NFL, right? So those of you who are familiar with Twitter, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, when you tweet, you can include the Twitter handle for other people. And when you do that, those other people see what you're tweeting about them. So instead of saying, shout out to the Washington football team, if you write it as shout out to at Washington NFL, that's the official Twitter handle for the Washington football team. The Washington football team will see your tweet. You know, if you tweet at NFL, instead of saying just the NFL, the NFL will see your tweet, okay? There's a strategy, a strategery behind doing this, all right? So Anna Kresmer has her tweet. Uh, Kyung Rodan, good old Kyung. Uh, Kyung writes, again, these are all women. Quote, I love how at Washington NFL is setting the example in the at NFL with cultural changes, end quote. Marsha Pick, good old Marsh. You know, you want to have a good time, call up Marsha because she knows what's up. She's hysterical. Marsha tweets, okay at Washington NFL, be the change you want to see in the world. Diversity, dot, dot, dot. I see you at NFL, end quote. Rosa Widowson, in a tweet that came out about two hours after that last tweet, that Marsha Pick tweet, 
okay at Washington NFL. Be the change you want to see in the world. Diversity, dot, dot, dot. I see you at NFL, end quote. Word for word, character for character, the exact same tweet of the Marsha Pick tweet. Hmm, what are the odds? Two different people, the exact same tweet, the exact same wording. Rochelle Dowling, in a tweet that came out the next morning, the exact same tweet, the exact same wording, the exact same characters. Okay at Washington NFL, be the change you want to see in the world, diversity dot dot dot, I see you at NFL, end quote. Three different people, three different Twitter handles, the exact same tweet, the exact same characters. Uh, and Gao, quote, let's show at NFL, at Washington NFL, some support for being willing to change, end quote. Reba Wiley, good old Reeves, quote, somebody better tell at NFL, this is how you set the example. Real leadership at Washington NFL, end quote. India Edmondson, I can go on forever with these. This tweet actually includes Dan Snyder's official Twitter handle, quote, at real underscore Dan Snyder is really out here doing what needs to be done at Washington NFL, at NFL, end quote. And on and on and on these tweets go. All by women, all so favorable, so positive regarding Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. And all, again, tagging the Washington football team and the NFL, all right? So obviously, the perception that's trying to be established is Well, Washington has become so much more diverse over these last few months. You know, first team president who is black in NFL history, right? The hiring of Jason Wright. Washington has done things like hire, of course, a black general manager in Martin Mayhew. Washington has done things like hire the first full-time black female assistant coach in NFL history in Jennifer King. And this campaign very clearly is trying to say, hey, look at all the good that Dan's team is doing. Look at all these wonderful things. And in the midst of a sexual harassment scandal, golly gee, right? What are the odds? All these tweets are from women. Hmm, man, who'd have, who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? You know, Dan Snyder is that, you know, Dan Snyder is a regular Susan B. Anthony, man. I mean, who the heck knew? Who the heck knew that this kind of thing was out there? These are bots. They are a 100% bots. The question isn't whether they're bots. The question is, who orchestrated this campaign, all right? And like I said, there's no absolute proof that Danny did this. There's no absolute proof that Team Danny or someone connected to Danny did this. But I ask you this question. Who the heck else would orchestrate something like this, okay? Who the heck else would take the time to put out this many tweets from this many fake accounts? Anna Kresmer, Kyung Rodan, Marsha Pick, Rosa Widowson, Rochelle Dowling, Ann Gao, Reba Wiley, India Edmondson. Who, what? They're not real people. Who would take the time to do this other than Danny slash Team Danny slash someone connected to Danny? I'm asking the question. I'm legitimately asking the question. I know the internet is filled with all kinds of wackos, all right? All kinds of weirdos. Is it possible someone just went rogue and did this on his or her own? I guess it is. I guess it is. Like I said, you know, you can't be certain about anything. But I also know this too, as a lifelong fan of this team, as a follower of this team my entire life, as is the case for so many of you, this kind of thing is 100% the kind of thing that happens with our team. It's bizarre. It's strange. 
It's whacked out. It's unprecedented. It makes perfect sense. Okay. This whole period of time we just talked about, right? The last 18 months, it's not just been all the change. It's been how bizarre things have gotten. Like, do you remember this? Do you remember this from last summer? The Capri Bibbs thing? One of the wild rumors that circulated in the days leading up to the publication of that first Washington Post article about the sexual harassment scandal was that Jay Gruden and Capri Bibbs slept with the same Washington employee and that that's what prompted Jay to bench Bibbs in favor of Byron Marshall during the 2018 season. Do you remember that? That was a thing this past summer, all right? The moment that captured the absurdity of everything going on over the summer was Capri Bibbs on July 17th of last year in a near 49-minute interview with a 16-year-old, okay, this guy Owen Smith on an Instagram show, Catch the Blitz, while getting a haircut, essentially confirming the rumor, okay? So again, Capri Bibbs is sitting in a barber shop, or at the very least in a barber's chair, getting a haircut, giving this interview on an Instagram show conducted by a 16-year-old, confirming that, yes, this happened. Myself and JJ were involved in some kind of love triangle with the same Washington employee. Like, if that doesn't check every box of absurdity, of whacked outness, of things being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, I don't know what does, okay? So, like, that's the environment in which things have been happening for our Washington football team. So if that can happen, and it did, you can find it online, this Capri Bibbs interview in a barber's chair, talking about a love triangle with Jay Gruden and a Washington employee speaking to a 16-year-old, okay? That happened. I'm not making that up. If that can happen, is it really that out there? Is it really that strange? Is it really that impossible to believe that Dan Snyder would have bought Facebook ads and set up bots to win himself favorable publicity. You tell me. Hit me up on Twitter, at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, Danny, very much. So like I said, Friday was bonkers. Friday was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when it came to the Washington football team. I'm going to hold my fire on one of the things that came out on Friday. That is this continued purge by Ron Rivera of guys who predated him with the team. Because that actually deserves a lengthy conversation. And we got a lot to get into on today's podcast. So maybe we'll do that tomorrow in terms of what's going on there. But I think that is very notable. The other big thing, though, on Friday, in addition to that and, of course, all that went on with the Donnie, was Washington officially releasing quarterback Alex Smith. Uh, we had been waiting on that to become official, right? We had the reports uh, all the way back on Monday, so a week ago today, that Washington would be releasing Alex. So the news on Friday certainly wasn't a surprise. We were just kind of like, why is this taking so long? Uh, it's interesting. Ron Rivera in the statement announcing the release did say that the release had come at Alex's request. Okay. Uh, if you believe that, then you also believe that every one of those women who tweeted favorable things about Dan Snyder and the Washington football team are real women. Okay. So I would just say that you, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I tend to think you're probably not. But anyway, Ron in a statement said, quote, I had a chance to meet with Alex Smith and we had a very honest and real discussion. After the conclusion of that meeting, we decided that it would be best for both parties to move on, and we will be granting Alex his request to be released, end quote. So look, I mean, you can get caught up in the semantics here. Like, maybe this is the kind of thing of Alex knew he was going to be released, so he asked for his release before they could release him. You know, it's a kind of thing where it's like, you can't fire me, I quit. But we, we understand 
it was Washington that decided to move on here. So whether Alex actually formally requested his release or not, the breaker upper in this relationship was Ron Rivera. All right. The break up E is Alex Smith. I don't care who asked for what. Ron wanted to part ways with Alex. I think if Ron still wanted Alex, if Ron was like, no, Alex, we want you to be our QB1 for 2021, Alex would not have asked for his release, if in fact he ever truly did ask for his release. Uh, the statement did include Ron thanking Alex for his contributions in the 2020 season. Statement did make mention of Alex's impact on younger players and leadership. It, it was overall a nice statement, but the, the newsiest thing about it was the team making it a point to say, no, Alex asked for the release. We are granting his request to be released. I think there's a strategy behind that too, and that there is a portion of the Washington football team fan base that's not happy about this, or at the very least is questioning of this. So if you, if you categorize it as, well, we didn't necessarily want to do this. He asked for this. You know, maybe you soften the blow there. Although honestly, like if you're Ron, you shouldn't care about that stuff. The, the people who are like, Alex has to be back next season. Uh, to me, they're missing some major things with this situation. And if they're going to miss those things, let them miss those things. You know, it's not incumbent upon you if you're Ron Rivera to have to win the favor of every single fan. You've got to do what's in the best interest of the organization. I very much believe releasing Alex Smith is in the best interest of the organization. Great guy, all-time great comeback story, but a road to nowhere as a quarterback at this point for this team and a costly road to nowhere. You're freeing up around $15 million in salary cap space by doing this. Rather than rehash, though, all the reasons why releasing Alex makes sense and everything that went on in the saga uh, with Alex Smith over the last few years, I, I did want to just put a capper on our Alex Smith conversation and, and get into really three things in the Alex Smith saga that I don't think have been brought up nearly enough, okay? So the first two things have to do with Alex becoming Washington's starting quarterback in 2020, right? Again, all-time great comeback, incredible achievement, comeback player of the year, no doubt, all that stuff is still true. But there are two things specific to that that need to be remembered. Again, Alex becoming Washington's QB1 in 2020. Number one is this, a confluence of events in addition to Alex working hard and being determined to play again occurred to where he became the best option to be Washington's starting quarterback. You see, Alex becoming Washington's QB1 in 2020 was, yes, a testament to Alex, but it also was a result of a whole lot bouncing in his favor and a whole lot going wrong for a whole bunch of other people, okay? I mean, you start with Dwayne Haskins. Dwayne Haskins was a failure as Washington's QB1 in 2020 after week one, right? He did lead that come from behind win over the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field in week one, and he deserves credit for that, all right? Wayne Wayne did a nice job in that game. Second half play, the legendary halftime speech that he gave, gave uh, on that day. But beyond that game, he was a complete and total failure. And as we know by now, this was as much about his behavior off the field as about his performance on it. If Dwayne Haskins isn't arriving to meetings late, if Dwayne Haskins isn't failing to master the playbook, is if Dwayne Haskins isn't refusing to prepare for games as diligently as most other NFL quarterbacks do, if Dwayne Haskins isn't bragging about throwing for 300 plus yards in a loss to the Baltimore Ravens, if Dwayne Haskins isn't even after being benched, still not putting in the work that the coaching staff wants to see, never forget the John Kime Report podcast in late December said coaches still at that point had only been seeing about 70% of the work from Wayne Wayne that the coaches wanted to see. If all that's not happening, Alex Smith never starts for Washington last year. If Dwayne does as he's supposed to do, i.e. works hard 
prepares well, plays even better, then the QB1 job is Haskins, and that's it. That's the end of the conversation. That didn't happen. Dwayne Haskins was a complete bust to where he was released by the team before the end of his second season, something that almost never happens in the NFL with a first-round quarterback. So that's where you start. Like, so much of this is about the incompetence of Dwayne Haskins, okay? Then you move to this, the man who replaced Dwayne as Washington's QB1, Kyle Allen, getting hurt, right? Washington did not go from Dwayne Haskins to Alex Smith. Washington went from Dwayne Haskins to Kyle Allen. And Kyle Allen, right, suffered that dislocated left ankle and reported small fracture in the loss to the Giants at FedEx Field in week nine, got put on injured reserve on November 16th. So yeah, if Kyle Allen doesn't get hurt, Alex Smith doesn't become Washington's starting quarterback. And then another thing in terms of this confluence of events that led to Alex becoming Washington's QB1, the state of the NFC East, right? The division was so bad in 2020 that it remained winnable for Washington throughout the season. Never forget this about the NFC East in 2020. The Philadelphia Eagles at three, six, and one became the first outright division leader with no more than three wins through week 11 since the AFL-NFL merger in 1970. That's how bad the division was, that through week 11, the three, six, and one Eagles were alone in first. That had never happened in terms of a team not having more than three wins through week 11, having an outright lead in the division since the merger in 1970. A better division, a better NFC East might have led to, say, Ron Rivera going back to Dwayne as a starting quarterback, or giving Taylor Heineke an opportunity sooner, or even giving Steven Montez a chance. But because Washington was in it, Ron was like, well, Wayne Wayne's a bust. Kyle Allen's hurt. Why don't we go with Alex Smith? He's got the experience. He is a winner. And let's see what happens here, you know? And that's what happened. If the season had been lost, if Washington had no chance at a postseason spot, I do think there's a decent chance you would have seen one of these other guys. You know, maybe Heineke becomes a starter sooner. Like I said, maybe Montez gets a shot. But Ron was like, no, we can win this thing. And Alex has worked hard, so let's reward him. So I think that's important to remember. I don't think this gets talked about enough. Alex becoming Washington's QB1 in 2020, as much about the confluence of events as it was about, again, all the great things about Alex, the diligence, the perseverance, the grit, etc. There's also this too, and this is a more global take on Alex's comeback and him becoming the QB1 once again. Him becoming Washington's starting quarterback again was both a testament to Alex but also an indictment of the franchise, okay? Because let's be honest about this. A better organization would have long since found its next QB1 two years after Alex suffered the broken right fibula and tibia in that loss to the Houston Texans at FedEx Field on November 2018. I mean, let's just think about this. Let's take a step back and look at this thing from, you know, 20,000 feet. Quarterback suffers a gruesomely injured right leg ends up undergoing 17 surgeries on that right leg. And two years later, he's still your best option at quarterback? (laughs) I I mean, think about that. Does that make any sense? Is that in any way saying something good about you as a team? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah, I mean, that's cuckoo, all right? That this guy breaks his leg gruesomely, undergoes 17 surgeries, nearly has to have the leg amputated, nearly dies... And yet two years later, he's your best option as QB1? 
<laughs> what does that say about you? Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, exactly. A better organization would have long since found its next starting quarterback two years after Alex initially got hurt. Washington instead, right, went through Colt McCoy, Mark Sanchez, Josh Johnson, Case Keenum, Colt again, Dwayne Haskins, and Kyle Allen as starting quarterbacks before arriving back at Alex. You know, I've often wondered this. Alex, at various points in the 2020 season, in private moments, or or maybe moments at home, must have laughed his rear end off. He must have cracked up at like, my God, this organization so incompetent that I'm back as a starting quarterback. I should be dead, or at the very least, my right leg should be cut off. And instead, I'm starting a quarterback for this team because this team has been so bad at getting its act together at the quarterback position. Like, no doubt, again, Alex becoming the QB1 again, a testament to all the good things about him and the comeback. But it's also a major indictment of this franchise. And that needs to be understood. And then a third point in terms of things with Alex Smith and the Washington football team that don't get talked about enough. And I got to give props to an emailer, uh, Ryan wrote me a great email uh, a week or so ago about this. And it's a very worthy point. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So of course, so much has been made and truthfully, rightfully so about Alex's great record as Washington football team quarterback. The official Alex record as WFT QB ends up being 11 and five. The rest of Washington's quarterbacks over Alex's three seasons with the team went five and 26. Alex, 11 and 5. Every other QB over the last three years for this team, 5 and 26. It's very difficult to ignore. Now, I'm not a big believer in judging quarterbacks solely or even primarily on their records. I know a lot of you are in agreement with me on that. It's a very faulty way of doing this. You know, if you're going to do that, then Sonny Jurgensen in his career was a sub 500 quarterback, 69, 71 and 7. So what does that mean? You know, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Like, should he not be because of that record? You know, Deshaun Watson, who everyone is falling all over themselves to try to trade for this offseason, went 4-12 and last year. So what does that mean? Does that mean he's a bad quarterback? Or does that maybe mean there's a little bit of context that needs to be entered in the equation, right? So to me, you can never just go by wins and losses when evaluating a quarterback. And like I said, a lot of you listening, I know, agree with that. But understand this about this 11-5 and record for Alex is Washington quarterback. And this does not get talked about nearly enough. Take a guess. How many of those 11 Alex Smith wins came against teams that finished with winning records, okay? Out of the 11, how many of those wins do you think came against teams that finished with winning records, okay? You know what the answer is? One. One. That's it. Just one of Alex's 11 wins as Washington quarterback came against a team that finished with a winning record, and that was the win at the Pittsburgh Steelers this past season. 23-17, Monday evening football in week 13. That's it. That's the list. Just one of the 11 Alex wins came against a team that finished with a winning record. So if you want to knock yourself out over the 11-5, and you know, over the 5-1 and in 2020, go ahead and do so. But understand what you're doing. You're knocking yourself out over a guy who had just one win against a team that finished with a winning record. And that, as much as anything, crystallizes why you can't go too nuts, too gaga over Alex's one loss record. One win against a team 
that finished with a winning record. We all wish Alex well, okay? We all thank him for his contributions, but it was time to part ways. And there are some things that need to be remembered when it comes to why what happened happened with him over his time with the Washington football team. All right, we shift gears now into our D.C. Sports Weekend, a weekend that got off to a terrible start for the Capitals, but ended in a much better way. So Friday night, the Caps suffered a 5-1 loss at the Boston Bruins, maybe the single worst performance by the Caps this year. I mean, the game was one of these no-doubt routes. Caps were down 5 nothing in the third period, but then came what happened on Sunday night. The Caps improved to 14-6-4, a 3-1 win at the Philadelphia Flyers, as the Caps played in front of fans for the first time this season. Wells Fargo Center had an official attendance of 3,023 fans. So great to see that. You know, this to me, just going back to our Nationals conversation last week of not allowing fans, at least not yet, uh, inside Nationals Park to begin the season per D.C. Uh, you know, you're opening things up. You can do these things safely. I mean, obviously, Wells Fargo Center is an indoor arena. Uh, Nationals Park is outdoors, open air. You can mask up, socially distance. You can do this in a safe way. If you can have 3,000 plus at Wells Fargo Center for Caps Flyers, you can certainly have at least 1,500, 2,000 fans at Nationals Park for Nats Mets on opening night. But I digress. Very good win for the Caps on Sunday night. The Caps winning their first game without Tom Wilson during this seven-game suspension. And, And why don't we go ahead and start there? Because that really was the biggest, newsiest item for the Capitals over the weekend. So in that hideous loss at the Bruins on Friday night, Tom Wilson, a hard hit on the Bruins defenseman, Brandon Carlo, into the boards near the left corner of the Caps offensive zone, 18-27 into the first period. Now it is worth noting right away, Wilson did not receive a penalty. And the hit while high, I thought was more to like the left shoulder and collarbone of Carlo than to his head. And Wilson didn't launch himself. That's always a big thing they look at with these hits. Do you leave the ice? Do your skates leave the ice? Is there separation between the ice and your skates? Do you launch yourself? Wilson didn't really do that. Actually, what's kind of interesting about the whole sequence was Jacob Vrana, after the Wilson hit on Carlo, actually went with like a cross check to the back of Carlo's head slash neck. Nobody has said anything about that. I'm like, man, that was kind of nasty from old uh, Jacob Vrana there. But anyway, uh, Wilson delivers the hit. There's a lengthy stoppage in play. There's conversation amongst the officials. No penalty is administered. Wilson then gets targeted by the Bruins the rest of the game, gets into fights with defenseman Jared Tenorti in the second period, Trent Frederick in the third period. Carlo, according to the Bruins, taken from the arena via ambulance to a hospital, but then released and sent home on Saturday morning. Also on Saturday morning, the NHL Department of Player Safety comes out, says that Wilson has been offered an in-person hearing via Zoom. But then later on Saturday, Saturday night, in fact, the NHL Department of Player Safety announces Wilson has been suspended for seven games pending an appeal. It came out on Sunday evening that Wilson will not be appealing the suspension. Now, one of the really good things the NHL Department of Player Safety does do is it puts out these explanation videos telling you why suspensions are handed out. So it's a very upfront, you know, transparent approach to things, which I think is good. Like you may not agree with the suspension, but you at least get an explanation from the Department of Player Safety. And said the explainer in the video that was put out for this Wilson suspension, quote, while there are aspects of this hit that may skirt the line between suspendable and not suspendable, it is the totality of the circumstances that caused this play to merit supplemental discipline. 
What separates this hit from others is the direct and significant contact to a defensive player's face and head, causing a violent impact with the glass. This is a player with a substantial disciplinary record taking advantage of an opponent who is in a defenseless position and doing so with significant force, end quote. And I don't know about you, but I read that, I hear that as the following. It's borderline whether we should have suspended old Wilsey, but because he is Wilsey and he has the history he has, we're going to suspend him because we're tired of dealing with him. Like, I think that's exactly what this seven-game suspension is about. I think it's very debatable whether he should have gotten suspended for this. Again, doesn't launch himself, you could argue, doesn't target the head, doesn't even receive a penalty, okay? Like, all those things work in your favor toward not getting suspended, and they say in the video, point blank, like, yeah, there are aspects of this that kind of walk the line between suspendable and not suspendable, but because he is who he is, we're going to give this to him because we're tired of his whole act, and, and that's what happens, unfortunately. When you're Tom Wilson and you have the history he has, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. This is Tom Wilson's fifth NHL suspension. All of them have come since September 2017. It's his first suspension since the October 2018 one, which was for 20 games. That was for that illegal hit to the head of uh, Oscar Sundquist of the St. Louis Blues. That that hit, if you remember, that came in the Caps preseason finale that year. Wilson has actually been suspended three times for things that have happened in preseason games, which is really odd. Uh, that 20-game suspension ended up being reduced to 14, although he ended up serving 16 games because he served more than 14 when it was reduced to 14, if that makes sense. But so point being, it, it had been a while since he had been suspended, but we can't just ignore like the history. It is substantial. Remember what happened the year prior to that last suspension, 2017-2018, the Stanley Cup winning season for the Capitals. Wilson got suspended three different times that year. The first two suspensions were for hits on St. Louis Blues players during the preseason. So three times Wilson has been suspended for hits on Blues players in preseasons. That's kind of strange. And then that third suspension, remember, came in the playoffs. That three-game suspension for the illegal check to the head on Zach Aston Reese and that Caps win at the Pittsburgh Penguins in Eastern Conference Semis Game 3. Although on that hit, no penalty was called, just like no penalty was called for Wilson for this hit on Carlo on Friday night. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what to say. Like, yes, I'm ticked off that Wilson gets suspended for seven games like this, but I get where the NHL's coming from. I do. It's like, you know, we got to deal with this guy again, okay? Uh, yeah, maybe we could have given him the benefit of the doubt, but we're not going to do that. Wilson's got to be careful with this stuff. And the thing about Tom Wilson is he is not some goon, you know? Tom Wilson is a guy who is skilled, Tom Wilson is a top six forward for the Capitals. Like, he's not just some headhunter. He's not just some enforcer who doesn't do anything beyond just hitting players and getting into fights. Like, no, he's a good player. He's an important player to the Caps. And I know it's kind of like you want him to be physical, so you don't want to take the physicality out of him. But obviously, when you get suspended for seven games, that hurts your team. So it's something, it's it's a line you got to continue to try to walk here. The NHL clearly has not forgotten about O'Wilsey, and uh, he gets this seven-game suspension here. And I think it's telling, too, he's not appealing. You know, if he really thought there was a good chance that this thing would be reduced, he clearly would appeal. That he's not appealing, I think, says a lot. But anyway, good job by the Caps for beginning life without Tom Wilson for a while here with this 3-1 win at the Flyers on Sunday night. The Caps dominate the puck possession battle in terms of even strength play, uh, finishing per natural stat trick with 45 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers 32. And that discrepancy was really all about the second period. Caps in the second period overcome a one nothing deficit at the end of the first period with two goals 
And the Caps in the second period, 27 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' eight. Just a tremendous job uh, by the Caps. Caps did give up 10 more shots on goal than uh, the Caps had. 27 shots on goal for the Caps, 37 for the Flyers. A lot of that had to do with being on the penalty kill a bunch. Uh, Caps did have four more minors on Sunday night, but the Caps went 4-4 on the penalty kill. And as the cliche in hockey goes, your best penalty killer is your goaltender. And the Caps on Sunday night got an excellent performance by Ilya Samsonov, uh, probably his best performance of the season. He was the Caps starting goaltender for the second time in four games, and he was terrific. Stopped 36 of 37 shots. You go by the data on natural stat tricks, Samsonov stopped all nine of the high danger shots that he faced. Uh, the only goal he gave up was an even strength goal in the first period to Joel Farabee, who went five hole on a two on one breakaway. And that was it. Samsonov was really good. So love to see that. You know, Friday night, Vitek Vanacek got pulled. It was a rare stink bomb from old Vitek. Uh, he was a starting goaltender again. Vitek was on Friday night, 18th time in 20 games. And he had maybe his worst game of the season, stopped just 14 of 18 shots. Now, this wasn't all on him. The play in front of him often left a lot to be desired. It was a terrible game on Friday night for the Caps top defense pair, John Carlson and Brendan Dillon. But Vitek Vanacek got pulled in the second period in favor of Ilya Samsonov. And Samsonov, who, as you likely know, right, was supposed to be the Caps' number one goaltender, has ended up becoming the number two goaltender thanks to missing so much time due to COVID-19 protocols. And then kind of having this like ho-hum stint in terms of rehab assignments for AHL affiliate Hershey. It, it had clearly been Vitek Vanacek's job. I don't know that that has changed, but maybe it is in the process of changing. You know, we'll see. But Samsonov was really good on Sunday night. I give him full credit. Alex Ovechkin had a goal on Sunday night. Even strength goal, 15-11 into the second period. Scored his goal from the low slot near the bottom of the left circle of a great sequence by TJ Oshie. Oshie faked a drop pass at the point, skated into the right circle, then fired a beautiful pass through the slot to Ovi. Oshie, by the way, two assists on Sunday night. But for Ovechkin, with this goal, it is career regular season road goal number 363. So Ovi surpasses Steve Eiserman for the second most regular season road goals in NHL history. And the goal, the 714th career regular season overall goal for Ovechkin. So he's now within three of Phil Esposito for number six in NHL history. Ovechkin has been good lately. He's not piling up the goals and the points like you want, but you got to look beyond that. Uh, Sunday night, he has the goal. He has a team high eight shot attempts, including tying for a team high with three shots on goal. You go back to the loss at the Bruins on Friday night. And yes, this was a bad game for the Caps overall, but Ovi in that game, game high, eight shots on goal and four hits. Now we did have the worst plus minus rating of the game at minus four, but like Ovi's been active. He's been a part of things here. And I want to give him credit for that because I know there's been a lot made of like the lack of actual scoring from Ovechkin, but there's more to his game than just that. Uh, so good to see him, though, rewarded with the goal. It was kind of a weekend of milestones for the Caps, by the way. Even in that loss at the Bruins on Friday night, Nicholas Backstrom had the primary assist on the Caps' lone goal at Jacob Vrana, even strength goal in the third period. For Backstrom, career regular season assist number 700 there on Friday night. Backstrom, just the 25th player in NHL history to get to 700 career regular season assists before his 1,000th NHL regular season game. Of the 24 other players to do that, 23 are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's going to be very interesting when Backstrom retires, and hopefully that's not for a long time here, but we know Ovechkin is a slam dunk Hall of Famer. I think Backstrom is a slam dunk Hall of Famer. I don't know that he will get that treatment, but he should. The Caps in this rock the red era, it's not one Hall of Famer they've had 
to me, it's two. It's Ovechkin and Backstrom. And getting to 700 career assists, I thought highlighted that. Uh, very good night on Sunday night for the Caps. Third line, Connor Sheary, Lars Eller, Richard Ponick. Uh, those three guys accounted for the Caps' top three five-on-five shot attempt percentages in the game per natural stat tricks. It was good to see that. And major production from Caps defensemen in that win at the Flyers on Sunday night, including two goals. Uh, Dmitry Orloff, even strength goal, 1944 into the second period. Orloff scoring his goal from the left circle near the slot off a great pass from another defenseman, John Carlson, from above the right circle through the slot, uh, not unlike the Oshie pass to Ovechkin on his goal. And then Nick Jensen had an even strength goal, 415 into the third period for his first goal as a cap since the team traded for him. Understand the Caps traded for Jensen in February 2019. It's March 2021, and he's finally got himself a goal. Scored his goal on a shot from the right circle on a sequence that began with a massive hit by defenseman Zdeno Chara. So you had all kinds of defensemen contributing here uh, with these two goals. Chara, as he crossed the blue line from the Caps' defensive zone into the neutral zone, demolished Joel Farabee. Uh, Zdeno Chara, we talked about him last week, but how about the season this guy's having? It is his age 43 season. He led all Caps defensemen on Sunday night and five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. Had the secondary assist on the Ovechkin goal. Had a team-high four hits and had a team-best plus-minus rating of plus two. Did commit a second-period tripping penalty, but the Caps continued to get production from Zdeno Chara. And again, his age 43 season. So very good game for the Caps defenseman on Sunday night off. Again, a bad game on Friday night. And Carlson and Dylan especially on Friday night really struggled. So good bounce back effort. Caps get to 14, 6 and 4. Are two points behind the New York Islanders for first in the East Division. The Islanders are flying right now. Barry Trotz, old Trotzy, he's got the Islanders rolling. Islanders on Sunday win their fifth consecutive game 5-2. Uh, over the Buffalo Sabres. Next up for the Caps, home to the New Jersey Devils, Tuesday night at 7. So the Caps had a good night on Sunday night. The Maryland Terrapins did not. Uh, there's no other way to say this. This was a complete collapse by the Terps, and on senior night, no less, and against a Penn State team that came into the game just 6-12 and in the Big Ten. The Terps wrap up a 15 and 12 regular season, a 9 and 11 Big Ten regular season, a 66 61 loss to Penn State at Xfinity Center. Maryland began the game on a 12 0 run. Maryland led by as many as 16 points in the first half. Maryland led by as many as 14 points in the second half. But the Terps, upon establishing that 14 point second half lead, 50 36, allowed Penn State to end the game on a 30-11 run. Again, a complete collapse. Mark Turgeon, during his virtual postgame press conference, called the game a devastating loss. He actually said devastating or devastated multiple times during the press conference. Trust me, I heard every word. Uh, it was not good at all. And, you know, you look at the season in terms of conference play. Maryland began Big Ten play 1-5, and five, then went 8-4, and four, and then concludes the regular season with a two-game Big Ten losing streak. So you started down, then you shot up, and then you end back down again. Nine and 11 ends up being the conference record. Now, Big Ten is the best conference in college basketball this year. I don't really think there's that much discussion about that. It was a brutal run for Maryland in terms of the competition faced. In conference play, you know, Maryland, as of this morning, per KenPalm.com, has faced the fourth toughest schedule in Division One in terms of average adjusted defensive efficiency. So 
I don't think you look at 9 and 11 in the Big Ten and are like, man, that's not very good. Like, no, that's actually quite good, especially given the expectations for this Maryland team coming into the season. But look, man, you can't sugarcoat what happened on Sunday night. That was awful, okay? You're up 14 in the second half against a mediocre to poor Penn State team, and you end up allowing that team to do you via a 30-11 run the rest of the way? Like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to go. I got this email from Michael King late on Sunday night. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Hey, Galdi, I went to Maryland too. Turgeon is unacceptable. Keep hearing from your contemporaries that we are a basketball school. Then why don't they act like it? Sick of the late season swoons, swept by Penn State after losing to Northwestern. Not the worst coach, certainly, but a problem if we believe what is said about what Maryland should be. This is going to be so interesting with Mark Turgeon, okay? Because there are a lot of people who feel the way that Mike does. And I've given you my Turgeon take many times. It's not that he's a bad coach. It's that he's not a great coach and that there just hasn't been a lot of high achievement here over his time at Maryland. And that time is not a tiny sample size. This is year number 10 for the Turge as Maryland's head coach. It was feeling like this season was going to be his greatest moment. A team with less than sky-high expectations, a team that starts off 1-5 and five in the Big Ten, but a team that gets a lot better as the season goes on, a team that goes 8-4 and four over a 12-game stretch, and again, a brutal Big Ten, and a team that hopefully makes a halfway decent run in the NCAA tournament. Well, now I don't know what to think, okay? Because now you, you end your regular season on a two-game losing streak, You're about to go into the Big Ten tournament, which is something that the Terps like never do well, these conference tournaments. And, you know, Mark Turgeon, it's important to remember this with where you're at with him contractually. You got to make a decision on him this offseason. And the Maryland director of athletics, Damon Evans, has not been publicly committal in terms of what Maryland is going to do with Turgeon. Mark Turgeon in October 2016 signed a lengthy contract extension. Well, time flies. The contract extension is coming up. The extension is through the 2022-2023 season. So it's not up at the end of this season or next season. It's up at the end of the season after that. So you got two years beyond this season. The way it works in college basketball, college sports really is, you don't want your head coach to have fewer than two, three years on his contract because you want to be able to recruit. You don't want to be out there on the recruiting trail and people being able to negatively recruit you and say things like, well, don't go to Maryland. That guy, he's not even under contract beyond the next two years. You know, you'll be going into your junior season with a new head coach. You don't want to be in a situation like that. So you got to figure this out with Turgeon. Like, are you going to extend him or aren't you? And, you know, Maryland's had a rough go of it financially, right? I mean, the pandemic has been bad for everybody, but also with Maryland, remember the Jordan McNair tragedy in football? Like, Maryland really has not been in a great position just to be buying out remaining years on big money coaches' contracts. But you do have to figure something out here. Like, are you going to extend Turgeon or aren't you? And it looked like, especially off that great win over Michigan State last Sunday, like, all right, Maryland, uh, this is a great year for the Turge. Maryland's ending the season on a high note here, at least the regular season, and Mark's going to get extended, you know, or at the very least, he's not going to get fired at the end of the year. Now, we'll see. Like, we'll see. The next few weeks are huge, you know, because it may not be that, like, you fire him at the end of the season. It may be that you don't extend him. He wants to be extended, and that maybe leads to a parting of the ways. Like, you never know how this stuff ends up playing out. But yeah, like, you can't just ignore that bigger part of all this, the Mark Turgeon contract situation and kind of where we're headed with everything here. Now, look, when it comes to Maryland making the NCAA tournament, the Terps are still going to be making 
the NCAA tournament. That win over Michigan State now two Sundays ago, uh, that clinched it for Maryland, okay? And even with the loss to Penn State on Sunday night, the Terps, as we speak on this Monday, 34th in Division One in the NCAA's net rankings, 29th in Division One for KenPalm.com. This is a tournament team. This is a team that will be making the NCAA tournament. But the loss on Sunday night was awful, okay? I mean, you cannot sugarcoat this. Maryland had no answer for this kid, Seth Lundy, a 6'6 sophomore for Penn State. Seth Lundy, five for eight on threes, 31 points, eight rebounds, including five offensive boards and two steals in just 29 minutes off the bench. The calling card for Maryland this season, and really in most of these Turgeon seasons, has been defense. The defense on Lundy was completely ineffective. He had his way with the Terrapins on Sunday night. The Terps could not defend without fouling. You know, the Terps actually held Penn State to 33.9% shooting, including 9 of 26 on threes. But Penn State in just the second half went 18 for 20 on free throws. 18 for 20. The Terps for the game, 7 of 13 on free throws. So it's not just that Penn State had 20 free throw attempts in just the second half and you had 13 free throw attempts the entire game. It's that Penn State was far more efficient on its free throws. 18 of 20 in that second half versus you going to 7 of 13 for the game. How about rebounding on Sunday night? The Terps got ravaged on the offensive glass. Just one offensive rebound the entire game to Penn State's 10. One offensive board for Maryland the entire game. Penn State had 10. Maryland had just two second chance points. Penn State had 12. Maryland actually shot the ball pretty well. The the offense, for the most part, was good enough to win this game. 47.9% shooting, including 8 of 21 on threes. Did lessen as the game went on, but still, offense was not the problem. You couldn't stop Lundy. You couldn't defend without fouling, and you couldn't rebound on the offensive glass to save your life. Uh, Aaron Wiggins, 3 of 7 on threes, 15 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, but he committed all three of his turnovers in a span of less than two minutes in the second half with the Terps nursing a 39-34 lead. Like, that, that's always such a big part of these collapses, right? Like, a guy can overall have a pretty good game, but in a key stretch, I mean, three turnovers for Wiggins in less than two minutes while you're, you know, clinging to a five-point lead in the second half. Like, that, that's just so, to me, that is so representative of what happened in this game on Sunday night. Uh, Eric Ayala was one of the culprits when it came to the free throw shooting, just five of eight on free throws. He finished with 14.7 boards, three assists versus two turnovers. Dante Scott played for just 20 minutes off the bench as he dealt with foul trouble. Didn't start, you know, senior night, you start some people you don't normally start. But Dante Scott, just 20 minutes of playing time due to foul trouble. Just one rebound for Dante Scott over those 20 minutes. Did go three of five on threes. It was bad. There's no other way to say it. It was really bad. And what was already going to be a crucial postseason for Maryland is now even more crucial, you know, specifically regarding the future of Mark Turgeon. The heat is on. He's got to have a quality NCAA tournament run. Like, what does that mean? I think you got to make it to at least the second weekend, okay? Because if you don't, I think the conversation really starts to increase about where are we going exactly with this program? Now, of course, before the NCAA tournament, you do have the conference tournament, the Big Ten tournament. Um, I don't put a lot of stock into these conference tournaments. I know most people don't. I think it's not a great look when year in and year out you have issues in conference tournaments. So it would be nice to have a nice run in the Big Ten tournament, but that's not the end-all be-all. It really is about the NCAA tournament. Uh, Terps do end up getting the eight seed for the Big Ten tournament, which is going to be taking place at Lucas Oil Stadium 
in Indianapolis. It'll be Maryland versus the nine seed, Michigan State, uh, this Thursday at 11.30 in the morning. So a bad night, Sunday night for Maryland. A bad afternoon, Saturday afternoon for Georgetown. The Hoyas are essentially done when it comes to making the NCAA tournament. Georgetown wrapped up a 9-12 and regular season, a 7-9 and Big East regular season with a 98-82 loss at UConn. Barring an ultra deep run in the Big East tournament, the Georgetown Hoyas are done when it comes to making the NCAA tournament. Georgetown, as of Monday, 95th in Division One in the NCAA's net rankings, 85th in Division One per KenPalm.com. It just ain't happening once again for the Hoyas when it comes to making the NCAA tournament. This is going to be a sixth consecutive season that Georgetown does not make the NCAA tournament. The Hoyas have not made the NCAA tournament since 2015. It is remarkable what has happened with this Hoyas program, a program that at one point under John Thompson III made the NCAA tournament eight times in 10 seasons. And I know a lot of early exits from those NCAA tournaments with JT3. I know people used to complain about the Princeton offense and all kinds of things. You know what? You take those days in a heartbeat right now, six consecutive seasons you are on the doorstep of in terms of not making the NCAA tournament. And this was a total no-show game by Georgetown. The Hoyas never led in the game allowed UConn to begin the game on a 12-0 run, trailed by 29 points late in the first half. Just a massively disappointing effort and performance by the Hoyas. You know, they had been playing better 6-3 and three since having the four straight games postponed due to a positive COVID-19 test. The Hoyas were making things interesting, as we had been discussing on this podcast. Yeah, it was always going to be an uphill battle for Georgetown to make the NCAA tournament, but the Hoyas were playing better as the season went on, Patrick Ewing was getting his guys to be better. And you felt like, hey, they're making a run, you know, signs of growth, some positive vibes with this program. And then a complete no-show at UConn on Saturday afternoon. You know, we just talked about offensive rebounding for Maryland in its loss to Penn State on Sunday night. How about this? The Hoyas in the first half Saturday afternoon out-rebounded by UConn 23-9, including 8-0 on the offensive glass. Georgetown was terrible defensively, allowed UConn to score 98 points on 59.3% shooting, including 12 of 28 on threes. And the Hoyas were atrocious offensively in the first half, just 24 points on 6 of 20 shooting, including 0 of 5 on threes. Hoyas were much better offensively in the second half, but it didn't matter. Georgetown trailed by at least 16 points the entire second half. Again, just very disappointing. Like, there's no other way to put it here. Uh, Hoyas are the eight seed in the Big East tournament, are going to be facing nine-seeded Marquette at Madison Square Garden on Wednesday afternoon at three. The winner of that game is going to face the top seed, the regular season champion Villanova, Thursday afternoon at noon. And look, Georgetown now, we just discussed the Mark Turgeon situation. What about it with Patrick Ewing? You know, Georgetown is 0-3 in Big East tournament games under Patrick. If that becomes 0-4 with a loss to Marquette, on Wednesday at three, I think you do have to wonder about where we at here with Patrick. And I like Patrick. A lot of people like Patrick. Patrick busted his tail for years as an assistant in the NBA to become a head coach. You know, he wasn't just handed this job at Georgetown. He earned it in terms of toiling as an NBA assistant for years. Like he has wanted to be a head coach either at the NBA level or at the college level for a long time. He paid his dues and it just hasn't worked well 
for the Hoyas. And now that John Thompson is no longer with us, and maybe Georgetown is starting to get away a little bit from the John Thompson era, you do wonder if a complete parting of the ways from that era is about to happen here. We'll see with Patrick. We'll see. I mean, Georgetown, it's been a rocky deal over these last few seasons. You've had a bunch of departures, and bottom line, you just have not had nearly enough winning. Now, Georgetown did win its second most games this season in terms of Big East games uh, under Patrick, but that's not saying a lot, okay? I mean, 7-9 and nine in the Big East is nothing to go nuts over. And again, this no-show Saturday afternoon at UConn when you're fighting for your NCAA tournament life, like, that doesn't reflect well on anybody. So more college hoops, and then we'll get to baseball. A salute to the Virginia Cavaliers. A salute to Wahoo as the number 21 Cavaliers wrapped up a 17-6 and regular season, a 13-4 and ACC regular season with a 68-58 win at Louisville on Saturday. The Cavs clinched their fifth ACC regular season title in eight seasons. Now, Virginia got some help in doing this. Uh, that regular season championship made possible by number 11 Florida State falling at Notre Dame 83-73 earlier in the day. But no apologies are necessary. The number 21 Wahoos, ACC regular season champions. Uh, Virginia 13th in Division One in the net rankings as of Monday. 12th in Division One for KenPalm.com as of Monday. The Hoos have got the rack back together. Never trailed in this game at Louisville. Held Louisville to 36.8% shooting. Held Louisville's best player, the point guard, Carleek Jones, a graduate transfer from Radford who came into the game averaging 17.6 points per game to just six points. He finished with six points on two of 15 shooting. Classic Tony Bennett pack line Wahoo defense. Uh, Carleek Jones did have six assists versus no turnovers, but still a stifling defensive performance by Virginia on Jones. And look, with Virginia, you know, the defense hasn't been as great this season as we've grown accustomed to it being in the Tony Bennett era. Like overall, it's been good, but you know, we're used to defensive excellence from Virginia. Haven't always had that this year. Virginia had that recent three game losing streak, had that loss at Florida State back on February 15th, 81-60, a game in which the Seminoles went 13-24 on threes. Virginia had that loss at Duke on February 20th, 66-65, a game in which the Blue Devils shot 51% from the field. So good to see Virginia get back to its calling card. That is that outstanding defense. Uh, Cavs didn't necessarily shoot great on Saturday, just 3 of 15 on threes, but did go 24-37 on twos. Big game for Sam Hauser, 2 of 5 on threes, 7 of 9 on twos, 24 points, 8 rebounds, and 2 blocks, and did all that in just 30 minutes as a starter. Actually did with some foul trouble in the game. Uh, also a good game for Trey Murphy, the third. He went just one of five on threes, but six to seven on two, 17 points and six rebounds for him. The big man, Jay Huff, 10 points, five to six shooting, six rebounds and four blocks. Uh, still need more to me from your point guard, Kihei Clark, just one of seven shooting, three assists versus two turnovers. But look, Virginia, an ACC regular season championship, ain't nobody going to complain about that. Virginia is the one seed in the ACC tournament, which is going to be taking place at the Greensboro Coliseum, and Virginia gets the double bye. So the Hoos will be playing on Thursday at noon against the winner of eight-seeded Syracuse versus nine-seeded NC State on Wednesday uh, at noon. While we're talking ACC, while we're talking college hoops in the Commonwealth, Virginia Tech remains on pause. The Hokies' final two regular season games, home to Louisville last Wednesday and at NC State for this past Saturday, canceled due to a contact tracing review and then quarantining 
within the Hokies program. So Virginia Tech's going to go in the ACC tournament having not played a game since February 27th, since two Saturdays ago, that win over Wake Forest at Castle Coliseum, an 84-46 smashing of Wake Forest in that game. Tech bouncing back nicely in that game from a 16-point home loss to Georgia Tech on February 23rd. Virginia Tech has had a rough go of it uh, this season when it comes to COVID-19. Seven cancellations slash postponements. Not not always the fault of the Hokies, but just understand that seven games have been canceled uh, or postponed uh, this season due to COVID-19 protocols for someone. Virginia Tech is the three seed in the ACC tournament, does get a double bye, going to be playing on Thursday night at nine. Tech 42nd in the net rankings, 47th for KenPom.com. So Tech, like Virginia, clearly going to the NCAA tournament. With Virginia, it's getting interesting now how high of a seed the Cavaliers can end up getting. For the Hokies, I think you're still likely looking at, say, a five seed, maybe a six seed. We'll see. You know, the ACC tournament, I think, actually does have some value for both of these teams from a seeding standpoint. To whatever extent seeding matters. I'm not a big seeding guy. I don't think it matters that much. But, you know, you're obviously always shooting for the best seed possible. And Virginia and Virginia Tech are in that mix there for, you know, how high can you go? Like, if Virginia has a deep run in the ACC tournament, could you be looking at, say, I don't know, a three seed? You know, maybe a two seed if you win the whole thing? Like, you know, you never know with that kind of a thing. It's not a great Virginia team, but it's a good one. And, you know, in the NCAA tournament, as we know, you don't have to be great to do great. You just got to be good enough. And Virginia, I think, is good enough to make a run. We'll see if that actually ends up happening. And I'd say the same thing to a lesser extent about Virginia Tech. You know, Tech's advanced numbers aren't great. Like I said, just 42nd in the net, just 47th for Kempom.com. But Tech can play defense. Tech can shoot. Tech's got some talented players. So going to be interesting to see what the Hokies are able to do in the ACC tournament. Again, especially given that Tech has had a bit of a break here due to some more postponements caused by COVID-19. All right, let's get to the Nationals. If you're a Nats fan, you're aware that bizarre things have transpired with this franchise over the years. It's funny, earlier in this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, right, we talked about the absolute insanity that was this past Friday for the Washington football team. And the Nationals, certainly, they have not been at the level of the WFT over the years, but the Nats have had their share of bizarro situations. You know, you think about the Smiley Gonzalez scandal. You think about the jerseys that read Natnals back in the day. You think about what happened with Jock Jones. Do you remember the Jock Jones situation? He was the Nats assistant hitting coach. He hours before first pitch of game one of the 2017 NLDS against the Chicago Cubs gets suspended pending an internal investigation into what ended up being revenge porn that he was guilty of. There have been a lot of strange things that have happened with the Nats over the years. And with that as a backdrop, I bring to you what took place on Sunday involving reliever Jeremy Jeffress. So Jeremy Jeffress is a veteran reliever who the Nats had brought into Major League Spring Training on a minor league deal. And this was a signing that was just announced. Uh, It was on Monday, February 22nd that Davey Martinez confirmed that the Nats had agreed with Jeffress on this minor league contract with, again, the invite to Major League Spring Training. And yet, the Nats on Sunday, less than two weeks after signing Jeremy Jeffress, announced that they had released Jeremy Jeffress, and there really was no explanation. Uh, the president of baseball operations, the general manager, the ninja, Mike Rizzo, in a statement said that Jeffress, quote, was released for personnel reasons, end quote. And I want to be very particular with this. 
Rizzo did not say personal reasons. Rizzo did say personnel reasons. P-E-R-S-O-N-N-E-L. And this was double-checked by people, including Mark Zuckerman, because the kind of obvious reaction when you hear that would be, well, you mean personal reasons, like something happened. And Rizzo said, no, personnel reasons. So I don't know about you, but the word personnel usually has to do with your roster, right? Your other players, i.e. there was a numbers crunch in the bullpen, i.e. we had other options we like better than Jeremy Jeffress, that kind of a thing. And maybe, just maybe, that's true. But here's the thing. Everyone who covers and follows the Nats was saying the same thing. Jeremy Jeffress, even though he was a late off-season slash early spring training season signing, he was likely to make the team. Jeremy Jeffress, in two of the last three years, had an ERA under two. Uh, he's been up and down, and when he's been down, it's been bad. He had an ERA over five in 2019 with the Milwaukee Brewers. But Jeremy Jeffers in 2018, a 129 ERA with the Brewers. Jeremy Jeffrey in 2020, a 154 ERA for the Chicago Cubs. So it's like, hey, this guy can pitch. He's had success. He's been excellent at avoiding giving up home runs throughout his career, especially in today's home run happy launch angle environment. Jeremy Jeffress could actually be a guy who really serves the Nats well in 2021. So every expectation was that Jeremy Jeffress was going to make the team. And then out of nowhere comes this release on Sunday. Now, further adding to the mystery, a text exchange that Jeffress had with Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. Jeffress told Doherty the reason for the release is, quote, not true, end quote, though Jeffress did not specify what that reason was. So, yeah, man, we don't really know. I tend to think we're going to find out. I don't think for a second this has to do with personnel, i.e., like, just a numbers crunch, and he's just not going to make it, and we want to do the guy a solid and, and let him go sooner rather than later so he can find employment elsewhere. Like, no, I think something happened, or I think something may have been uncovered from the past, and the Nats felt like we better cut him now before this something comes out and it makes us look bad. So we'll see. We'll see. But a very odd development on Sunday for the Nationals with Jeremy Jeffress. Now, as for actual baseball occurrences for the Nats at spring training uh, in recent days. So first of all, there was very good Nats news on Sunday, and that is that John Lester was expected to be back with the Nats on Monday. Remember, John Lester, it was revealed last Wednesday by Davey Martinez that Lester had flown to New York to have surgery to remove his thyroid gland. And this raised all kind of eyebrows because, look, John Lester, he has a history of cancer. Uh, September of 06, Red Sox announced that Lester had been diagnosed with lymphoma. He went through chemotherapy, returned to pitch for Boston at the major league level in July 2007. So that cancer history has been a very big part of the John Lester story for years. We don't know that the removal of the thyroid gland had to do with the cancer or with the cancer history, i.e. did like the chemotherapy cause hyperthyroidism, like we just don't know. But uh, with Lester, something like this does kind of give you cause for concern a little bit. Like, you know, I hope the guy is okay. Well, uh, when Davey revealed this last Wednesday, it was said that Lester could be back with the Nats as soon as next week, i.e. this week. And it turns out that that's exactly what's happening here. We find out all this on Wednesday. The surgery took place on Friday. And it looks like Lester's going to be back with the Nats today, i.e. Monday. So great news. Awesome to hear that with John Lester. And presumably, he's doing well. And presumably, uh, the cause of the surgery wasn't anything super serious. I mean, we'll see. Uh, but excellent to hear that with John Lester. Very happy to hear that. Other things going on with the Nats rotation here. We have had the spring training debuts of both Max Scherzer 
and Patrick Corbin. So Max Scherzer is coming off this sprained left ankle that he suffered uh, about two weeks prior to the start of spring training. Max makes his Grapefruit League debut this past Friday evening, gives up two runs in one and two-thirds innings in a 7-6 win over the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, obviously, with a guy like Max, you're really not that caught up in the results. It's more about just how is he doing. Uh, and if you, if you do care about giving up the two runs, the two runs charged him came on a double that was given up by Luis Avalon, who relieved Max. So it's not even like he was on the mound when the two runs were scored. But, you know, Max did give up a single, did issue a couple of walks, each of which came to a batter who Max had down in the count 0-2. But okay, whatever. We're not going to get caught up in that. Um, Max made it through the outing. It seems like just fine. Seems like the ankle is not that big of a deal. Um, looks like he's going to be okay. That's what matters the most. It was kind of funny, though, with this Max outing on Friday evening. His velocity was being registered via the radar gun at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches in the 80s. And, you know, that's the kind of thing like, whoa, velocity in the 80s, like, that's not good. Uh, they actually feel like the radar gun was way off. And so they actually ended up shutting it down. They said, turn that thing off. It's going to mess with, it's going to mess with Max's head. We know he's not throwing in the 80s. And, uh, it doesn't feel like the velocity really is much of a concern at all. But I got a kick out of that. The radar gun got shut down because it wasn't being kind to Max. Uh, on Friday evening. Although a lot of times these radar guns at spring training games, they're way off. So um, I don't think anyone's really too shocked by that. But clearly you need Max to be healthy. You need Max to be, if not the best version of himself, then as good of a version of himself as is possible as he goes into his age 36 season. And of course, what is the final season of that seven-year $210 million contract? Patrick Corbin is a guy who I don't think has gotten talked about enough. Patrick Corbin in 2020 was really bad. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like, a lot of the conversation with the Nats rotation so far has been about, you know, Lester because of this thyroid thing, Max because of the sprain left ankle, Steven Strasburg because he's coming off the carpal tunnel surgery, and like, not a lot of conversation has taken place regarding Patrick Corbin. Corbin, last season, over 11 starts, had a 466 ERA. He gave up a major league worst 85 hits, He saw a strikeout rate plummet from 10.8 strikeouts per nine innings over the previous two seasons to 8.2. His average four-seam fastball velocity for Sports Info Solutions, a career-worst 90.8 of having been 92.2 in 2019. That is significant, a mile and a half per hour off your average four-seam fastball velocity from one season to the next. That is significant. And consequently, his hard hit percentage allowed per stat cast, a career worst 44.2. Basically, both the result stats and the process stats were really bad for Patrick Corbin in 2020. So he makes his Grapefruit League debut in what was a 5-3 range-shortened Nats win over the Miami Marlins on Saturday afternoon. Three strikeouts, gave up a double and a single in allowing one run in two innings. So, you know, decent first outing. We'll see where it takes us. But this is a big deal for the Nets in 2021. What happens with Patrick Corbin? Uh, Patrick Corbin is a perfect number three starter, right? In, in a good rotation, he fits in so well as a number three. He's not an ace. I'm not even sure he's a very good number two, but he's a very good number three, right? We saw that in 2019. He is going into his age 31 season. You know, you might think he's younger than that. He's not. He's already into his 30s. This is year three of that six-year, $140 million contract that he signed in December 2018. But I feel like that's a real sneaky key 
to the Nationals being good in 2021. It's not just about Max's health and performance, Strasburg's health and performance, you know, what you get out of a guy like Lester. It's about Patrick Corbin bouncing back. He gave up the most hits in the majors last season. Strikeout rate down, velocity down, hard hit percentage allowed up. Like there was a lot not to like about his year. Perhaps it was one of these things where like, well, you know, the shutdown and then the restart, that messed with me. Okay, fine. But a lot of guys had to deal with that. Nobody gave up more hits than you did, you know? So he's got to bounce back. This is a big year for Patrick Corbin, and uh, hopefully he gets a job done. All right, final segment on what has been a marathon installment of the Al Galdi podcast, but that's the way that it is on Mondays. You always have a lot to unpack from the weekend that was, and this is a juicy month when it comes to sports, a whole lot going on in the month of March, and that's always going to increase in the coming days here. So let's talk some Orioles. Uh, a few things with them regarding what's been happening uh, at their spring training there in Sarasota, Florida. So I think probably the most significant Orioles item from the last few days has to do with the prospect, the phenom, the catcher, Adley Rutschman. Of all of the young players who the Orioles have brought into the four during this teardown and rebuild in an analytics fashion, uh, engineered by Mike Elias over the last few years. No player is of more prominence and of more importance than Adley Rutschman. The O's took Rutschman with the number one overall pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. He was ranked by MLB Pipeline this past January as the number two prospect in all of baseball. Number one, in case you're curious, is Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco. Rutschman is expected to begin this season at double-A Bowie, but he on Saturday in a Zoom press conference with reporters did get asked about, you know, his take on kind of where he's at in his development, right? Obviously no minor league season last season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And what might be for Rutschman in 2021, i.e. do we see him at the major league level in 2021? Quote, I'm going to control what I can control, and I'd like to think I can compete at any level that you put me at just because of who I am. I'd like to think I'm a competitive person and can do those things, but I don't really know what my timeline looks like. I'm just here to play baseball and get better every day, end quote. Uh, look, I don't doubt that Rutschman could play. <clears throat> look, I don't doubt that Rutschman could play at the major league level in 2021, but I don't think that he should play at the major league level in 2021 at least not soon, okay? And I probably wouldn't bring him up at all for the very simple reason of I'm not going to start his service time clock. Unfortunately, in baseball, the way it works, and this could change with the next CBA, which is coming uh, hopefully at the end of this upcoming season, although the way things have been going between the owners and the players, it may take a while to get to the next CBA. But the way it is, is you have to be cognizant of a guy's service time clock when you call him up. Because if you bring them up too soon, it can end up costing you a year of having that player under team control, and he ends up becoming a free agent a year sooner than he otherwise would have. And so a lot of teams manipulate the service time to where you don't call the guy up until the deadline is passed by which you do get that extra year of team control. It would be stupid for the Orioles to not try to maximize their team control on Adley Rutschman. And especially with this upcoming season, which figures to be another one of these very bad seasons for the Orioles from a one-loss record standpoint, why are you trying to start the service time sooner than you need to, okay? So it's unfortunate because you'd like to say you just call the guy up when he's ready, but that's not the way the rules are set up right now. 
in Major League Baseball. But it is going to be so interesting, right, when Adley Rutschman is called up. He was the first catcher selected with a number one overall pick in an MLB first-year player draft since 2001. Joe Maurer by the Minnesota Twins had been the last catcher taken number one, number one. And Adley Rutschman in so many ways is like a Chuck Norris when it comes to college baseball. You know, Adley Rutschman in 2019 at Oregon State, his junior season, led all of Division One with a 575 on base percentage. That's incredible. Uh, Adley Rutschman in an NCAA regional game in May 2019 was intentionally walked with the bases loaded. Again, this is like Chuck Norris-like stuff that this guy was responsible for at the collegiate level. And Adley Rutschman is emblematic of one of the more encouraging things with the Orioles, and that is their farm system has been rebuilt. It's the number one thing that Mike Elias has done since he took over after the 2018 season. The Orioles' farm system was barren under Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter. And when I say barren, I mean barren, like nothing was coming from that system. Nobody was in that system. The prospect rankings buried the Orioles time in and time out. And here you are now, Adley Rutschman, number two prospect in all of baseball per MLB pipeline. The Orioles have a starting pitcher, Grayson Rodriguez, took him with the number 11 overall pick in 2018, number 27 overall prospect in all of baseball per MLB pipeline. Uh, Heston Kerstad, an outfielder, always took him with the number two overall pick in the 2020 draft, number 69 prospect in all of baseball. D.L. Hall, another pitcher, taken with the number 21 overall pick in 2017, number 70 prospect in all of baseball. Ryan Mountcastle, the first baseman slash left fielder, very impressive over his time at the major league level in 2020. Number 77 prospect in all of baseball. You got five of the top 80 prospects in baseball now. So this is a sign of the rebuild is working. Now, of course, prospects, as the saying goes, are suspects until proven otherwise. So we'll see what all these guys end up becoming. But again, a farm system that was giving you nothing, a farm system that seemingly had nothing, now has five of the top 80 prospects in the sport per MLB pipeline. So yeah, I mean, the record is probably going to stink once again for the Orioles in 2021. But guys like Adley Rutschman and Heston Kerstad and Ryan Mountcastle and Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall certainly give you hope. Certainly are like, hey, pain now, but hopefully pleasure later with these guys and hopefully others leading the charge. Now, I mentioned Rodriguez and Hall, pitchers, right? Starting pitching, huge issue for the Orioles for years, even when they were having success under Buck and Dan, right? Three playoff appearances in five years. So much of that success for the Orioles, even in that time period, came in spite of the starting pitching, not because of it. Uh, John Means started for the Orioles in their latest exhibition game, a 13-1 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates on Sunday. Things did not go well. Uh, four runs in two innings. But this is a good opportunity to get into what we're looking at with the Orioles' rotation for 2021. So it does seem like three of the five spots are more or less set. Uh, John Means and then two younger guys, Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer. Uh, Aiken is a guy who the O's took in the second round of the 2016 draft. Kramer is one of the guys who the Orioles got back to the Los Angeles Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade in July 2018. Conventional thought is at least one, maybe even two of the remaining spots in the rotation are going to go to uh, one or more, depending on how many of these spots are filled by these guys, uh, of the older guys, the, the non-roster invitees who the Orioles brought on board. Talking about Matt Harvey, Felix Hernandez, and Wade LeBlanc. And we, over the last few days, have had each guy get a turn in Grapefruit League play 
in terms of a start. And for two of the three, things have not gone well. Now, it's only one start in, so let's see what happens. But Felix Hernandez made his Grapefruit League debut by giving up two runs in two innings and had a fastball velocity of mostly just the mid-80s in a 6-5 loss to the Detroit Tigers on Saturday night. So not a very good start for King Felix, especially, again, with that velocity hovering you know, in that mid-80s territory. Uh, He's going into his age 35 season. Hasn't pitched since 2019. Hernandez actually opted out of the 2020 season with the Atlanta Braves. But understand this with Felix Hernandez. It's been a while since he's been King Felix, okay? His last three seasons with the Seattle Mariners, 2017 through 2019, he had an ERA of 542 over 342 innings. Uh, Matt Harvey made his Grapefruit League debut in a 13-4 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays on Friday afternoon. He struggled. Three runs in two innings on four hits, including a homer and two doubles and a hit by pitch. You know, Harvey's only going into his age 32 season, but man, has he fallen, right? I mean, Matt Harvey, the the dark knight of Gotham, as he was known, a stud for the Mets in 2012, 2013, 2015. His career has fallen off the cliff since the start of that 2016 season. Last five years for Harvey, an ERA of 582 over 411 and two-thirds innings, and he has bounced around a bunch since just the start of the 2018 season. Matt Harvey has pitched for the New York Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, the Los Angeles Angels, the Kansas City Royals, now hopefully uh, the Baltimore Orioles, at least in his mind. So he's really become a journeyman. You know, you're trying to just recapture some things with Harvey. I've talked about this with Hernandez, with Harvey. This is basically a fix them and flip them scenario. You didn't sign these guys for them to be a part of you when you finally get good in a few years. You sign these guys to rehab them, to fix them, and then flip them. Trade them away, get back a prospect or two. You know, this is exactly what the O's did last season with Tommy Malone. Signed him in February 2020 to a minor league contract. He was pretty good for the O's, and so the O's in August 2020 traded him to the Atlanta Braves. Fix them and flip them. Simple as that. Uh, Wade LeBlanc would be the third man in this mix in terms of rehab projects for the O's. Wade LeBlanc made his Grapefruit League debut by tossing two scoreless innings. So he's been the best of the bunch so far. That came in an 8-1 win over the Atlanta Braves last Wednesday afternoon. Now, LeBlanc was with the O's in 2020. Uh, was not good. An 8.06 ERA over six starts. He's going into his age 36 season. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. What you think, what you want. Uh, tell me. I want to hear from you, and I appreciate all the feedback that I continue to get. Subscribe, rate, and review to the pod. Appreciate that so much. Spread the word about this podcast. Let people know about the ongoing revolution. Huge next few weeks on this podcast with everything going on, especially in the NFL. The deadline by which teams must tag players is on Tuesday. So we're going to have a lot to get into uh, on Tuesday's podcast regarding the Brandon Sheriff situation. Have a good rest... Brandon Sheriff situation. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Brandon Sheriff.